0: flushcarecom slash
1: Hello and welcome to episode 131 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my life's dream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret, never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter, and musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. Now, on this episode of the podcast, I am joined by keyboard wizard, singer and songwriter Christopher Holland, a man whose session and touring work has featured the likes of Green On Red, Squeeze, Sam Brown, Elton John, Ray Davis, the Stereophonics, to name but a few. A hugely talented musician who joined the Paul Weller Band for the Heliocentric Tour in 2000. Chris is also part of Jules Holland's Rhythm and Blues Orchestra, and yes, that is his big brother. So we'll talk studio work, like the fabulous co-write I'm Gone, which Paul delivered Lee vocals on, along with TV show Later and The Hootenanny, and playing with Paul as part of that setup live. In between working with other artists, he continues with his first passion of writing, recording, and producing his own fabulous music. So we're going to dig into all this stuff on the podcast. Let's get into it. Christopher Holland, thank you for joining me.
2: Oh, it's a pleasure, Dan. Yeah, glad to finally sort of meet you here and to be doing this after quite a while, isn't it? I think it was this, the beginning of lockdown I was sort of mentioned about it. And I've been really enjoying a lot of the podcast since, I've got to say, it's some um, amazing achievement on your behalf to get it all together like this, you know. So there's nothing else quite like this, is it? I was thinking, because it's, it's quite a unique thing, you know, for an artist, you know, to have all, all these contributions from different people. And uh, so a lot of people I know, but a lot of people I don't. But it's like you kind of get to know about him through it and through other about other people, which you wouldn't know about, you know it's fascinating you know maybe he's listening to them enjoying them so much he doesn't want to do it yet because wait- he wants to hear all the different guests and what they've got to say about it. <laughs> now, that could be it you'll have a big party at the end and invite everyone that's um, been on you know like they could all c- come and it'd be like this is your life wouldn't they? and he'd sort of turn up and say, oh, good work and uh yeah I hope hope Paul's listening somehow and then you manage
1: to get him on at some point and your your dream comes true (laughs) fingers crossed fingers crossed well look we're having a lovely journey getting there and who knows how long it will take but you know what it's a real blast kind of talking to so many amazing people and digging into their careers and their stories about Paul and their lives and all that kind of stuff so we're going to do the same with you and there are lots of Weller connections that we'll dig into but the thing I find fascinating uh, from your point of view is that I mean this is a real musical family because obviously you know Jules Holland's your brother your your other brother your twin brother plays drums I think that's right so your house as kids must have just been horrendous amount of noise as a parent I mean I I just want peace and quiet but that wouldn't have been your household right? Well it was such a different time then I guess as well yeah because there there wasn't so many
2: distractions like there are now I suppose with Internet and stuff, but uh, yeah, I mean, it wasn't exactly like the Brady Bunch or the Partridge Family, you know. But it was, it was definitely sort of a, a musical sort of up, upbringing, you know. Um, I mean, my earliest memories are um, my mum used to play a little bit of piano, and my uncle played piano, and there was we had a player piano at my nan's house, and there was always a sort of a lot of piano music sort of being played. And, um, it, and my dad was more into classical music. He'd start playing a lot of sort of I think it was Wagner and sort of like really extreme classical music, and he'd be obsessed with his hi 5s and getting this amazing sound. But there'd always be some kind of music coming out of the house, you know. Yeah, I, me- I remember when I was really young, my brother, older brother, because it's about nine years difference, he used to play a lot of boogie woogie piano. So I'd be trying to sleep and hear all this kind of stuff <laughs> in my bed. You know, it was really inspiring. There, and I
1: thought, wow, that sounds pretty cool. He's pretty good at it, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. You know, he must have only been about sixteen or something. and I was probably sort of six, seven or eight, but it-, it sounded amazing. You know, and I, and I-, I saw the dogs just turned up. Hello, I-, I remember asking him to give me a few little tips, you know, and show me a few licks, even when I was seven or eight, which he kindly did. And I think you get the bug quite early from that, I guess, you know. And then same sort of times, the early formation of squeeze were rehearsing around the house in the front room a bit. So there was Glenn and Chris from Squeeze getting together with the original drummer and the bass player and listening to all that stuff was really inspiring, you
1: know, growing up. I was going to ask how you got your, your share of the of the instrument because was there just one piano that you were all, you know, and as soon as Jules is off, you're straight on or how did, it, how did that work?
2: Um, it was kind of a grand piano that my dad seemed to get some free from somewhere and it managed to just fit in this little room at the side of our house. So we always just used to play that a little bit but then he, he got this uh, thing to squeeze the original thing was an rmi electric piano which he then handed down to me at some point and then he had this polymoog which was it was like the most amazing sort of synthesizer that you could sort of imagine in the 70s i think they're about three thousand pounds then you know, I don't know but that was back in sort of early 70s i remember just putting headphones on and you'd sort of go in this different world it was like a sort of spaceship taking off all these sounds and these possibilities you know so that that was definitely a big kind of uh inspiration you know listening to the vintage those keyboards which weren't vintage then but then i've sort of started collecting some of those old keyboards since you know i guess from that yeah they'd sort of go off to the pub later and then i'd sneaking with my brother and just we'd start start having a little play when we were about eight or nine I guess you know I, I don't know but it was just a natural thing I suppose wasn't it at that time but you do
1: Was there ever any doubt that this would be your world as a career? Did you do anything else? Did you try anything else or was it straight into being a musician?
2: Not really I didn't really think of it as a career it just seemed like a fun thing to do you know and it, it just sort of took over I guess and then I sort, of, I sort of got really obsessed with just sort of writing song ideas although I didn't really think of as songs but just with little sort of pieces of music you know um, and then my older by the Finally, sort of when I got a bit older, in my sort of early teens, he kind of handed down a, a, a reel-to-reel four-track that he used to use. Which at the time nobody really had ways of recording stuff, you know, because it was before sort of internet and stuff, and before digital stuff. So it was an analog reel-to-reel TX thing. So I. I kind of started using that to record basic sort of little songs with my Casio keyboard. We kind of formed a little band at school with, with my brother on drums. It was harder then to meet other like-minded musicians, I think. Nowadays, it seems a little easier, doesn't it, because of Facebook and all that sort of stuff. And But there didn't seem to be anyone that age who was really into playing. We, we managed to find a couple of a mutual friends at a party, I think, um, when we were about 14, 15. There was a couple of girls that we vaguely knew who, who played uh, guitar and sang, and it was really sweet sound they got. It was a bit like some 60s kind of beat group and things and they, they looked good sounded good so we kind of formed a group together with them uh, and used to split local parties and a few pubs if we could get in and stuff and we brought up quite a big following locally you know with that so that was quite a good experience um, and a bit later on we got spotted by you know Nick Robinson from um, Magpie he was on that originally and he kind of quite liked us, so he kind of spotted us and he wanted us to go on a TV show he was doing called Free Time, so we went on that and then suddenly we got quite a bit of exposure and a bit later on got signed up to Miles Copeland's label and all that stuff and done a few records with that. It all just happened naturally really without kind of a big sort of plan I think at that time it was just quite an innocent thing just doing it for fun you know and then suddenly it becomes like a job
1: again <laughs> <laughs> and what a job it's been man I mean the amount of amazing people you've worked with the music you're creating of your, your own you mentioned Chris and Glenn and Squeeze um, which we'll have to dig into some of those memories there is a weller connection with Chris Difford who has been on the podcast but I love those guys they're absolutely fabulous but people like Ray Davis we've worked with I think Stereophonics Tom Jones. if I were to I mean this this is massive but who, who would you kind of go out actually if i were to pick two or three career highlights and we probably should mention weller as one of these right but yeah, yeah.
2: the amazing thing about the big band which obviously came to later on but it was that there's so many artists you get to play with you know, just not but it's only you just sort of go in to do a, you do one or two songs with them but it's not like you're part of their thing really but it's it's incredible just to be able to do that so that's why that is such an amazing gig you know but the first thing i started to, doing like that was probably when I started sort of about eight, 19 or 20 and that band Green on Red. I don't know if you remember them from America but they'd just done an album with um, Glenn Johns and his son Ethan was playing with them as well which is why I met him which is weird because I'm doing stuff with him now but um, but anyway so I started playing with, with them a bit and that was an um, incredible experience because we used to go into the I mean, it's the first big tours I did you know, pretty much everywhere in Japan and, and, and American stuff. And that was a big sort of inspiration, I suppose, to start with, because they were like a real rock and roll kind of band, you know, and I was a bit younger. And some of the conversations they'd have in the tour bus, and it was all like real, um, it was just inspiring, you know, listening to all that. So that was a big thing to start with. But I mean, my big hero is obviously someone like Stevie Wonder, which which I met when we did the Queen's Jubilee gig, which was pretty amazing. I mean, I've never actually played with him, but I said sort I've of almost got on stage with him when he was doing it because I was sort of standing at the back watching and it was almost like I was there on stage. And that... <laughs> but he, he's one of my biggest heroes. We did a thing with Steve Stevie Winwood, which was pretty amazing as well. In the, I think it was in Cheltenham, he came up and did Georgia with us um, and he was playing piano and we was just playing a bit of
1: organ behind him. But his voice is just, it's just amazing, isn't it, when you hear Stevie Winwood and his whole thing. Uh hey, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's on the list for the podcast, although I haven't yet managed to find any contact details whatsoever. It was a well a connection because he played on, I think it was Stanley Road, I think he played on. Yeah,
2: right? same as Dr. John, because I was going to say he, he was another one, but sadly he's no longer with us. But um, that was another highlight, I'd say. I mean, there's so many, it's hard to think, you know, yeah, course, uh, and I feel really fortunate to have played with so many people, you know. But it's interesting, you know, I'd, growing up, you don't really think about, about it, you know, because I remember seeing fake Memories of seeing the Jam on on the Top of the Pops and things like that. And a friend at school was a huge Jam fan. I sort of was aware of them, but I wasn't that into it. Um, and he sort of lent me their, I think, he had their first album. And he was obsessed with his final collection. He had a, when we had a green sort of park, he's he only sort of fourteen or so to have have this sort of chopper bike with all wing mirrors on it and, I th- and he was real mod, you know but he, he sort of gave me this first album to listen to and i got really into that sound you know it, you could feel the energy you know and then we I, I'm t- I remember going up to the marquee a few times when i was a bit young with my probably with my older brother to watch squeeze and i think the jam have been on some of those gigs at the same time and there was one at the greyhound I, I vaguely remember the pub isn't there anymore but they played at that i think so there were a few Sort of those early sort of punk times, well, not uh, mid punk times where it, the energy was just so, so sort of uplifting, you know, when you're at these, when you're quite young and you sort of hear these songs, it was, that was an uh, amazing time, really, you know, and I, I don't know if that will, I don't know if it's the same now, is it, in a way, the, the feeling of that, because it was, there was no sort of phones or anything and everyone was just in the moment. It was just quite, quite special, I think. Yeah. But yeah, I remember being part of that whole, that, that sort of time, it was, it, it just, uh, it felt quite magical, you know, and then managing, looking at that, thinking later on I'd be playing with Paul Weller and Squeeze and things like that so, seems quite odd, you know, but <laughs>
1: <laughs> sort of things just work out. You don't really plan it. Sometimes it just sort of goes in a certain way, you know. Talk me through the life of a touring musician then. So you mentioned about, you know, you're out on the road at a pretty young age and, and you're travelling the world with um, Green on Red there. To me, is you know, if I'm thinking about like my... um I've got an eight-year-old. If I'm thinking like in ten years' time, he's suddenly off with these rockers traveling around. I mean, that terrifies me as a dad. But I mean, was, were you nervous? Is there any kind of trepidation? Was it straight in this is really exciting? This is kind of well, this is the life I want. Sort of been signed up to this record label with
2: Miles Copeland, who IOS records, and we'd done a few records with that. And then that had sort of petered out a little bit. Um and we were sort of doing other things. And I was I started playing in this local band which are doing quite well, um, just for fun. But my main thing I've always been sort of writing and doing just, just you're know, constantly using it as a vehicle to write. Um, but then the offer came up. I think it's because Green on Red's tour manager was from Deptford or something and, and they, and they were looking for someone. I don't know quite how it came up, but I got a call and then I'd never really heard of him, but I got sent a couple of records and I thought it sounds kind of good, interesting. Um, and then turned up to the audition. It was like a rehearsal studio somewhere in London, anyway. And then the first person I met was this roadie called Captain Scarlet. I don't know where it's now, but he was amazing, like a huge, big, sort of old pump, you know, and he was, he was a lovely guy. Um, and Ethan John, who was who was drumming with them at the time? Because he needed, I think he needed the experience because his dad had just produced the album. It was an like, interesting mixture. So I met them, and then we went into the studio, and Dan Stewart and Chuck Prophet turned up. Um, it was just such a brilliant sort of sound, you know, that, that they got, um, and we all seemed to just gel. So the next thing I knew, we were just off to Europe. I think there was a big tour of Europe, everywhere pretty much, and then a Europe, UK tour, and then. Um, yeah, and I, I did that for quite a few years really, but I, I don't think I thought about it at the time. You just kind of go into it, you know, but it was such a different world then, I think. And it was, it felt different because there wasn't. I think the whole thing of just the, the internet's changed a lot of things, isn't it? I suppose, you know, it, it felt, it felt more organic if that's the right word, but it, it just, it felt more natural really. Cause you just go off and do it and you'd have to be a bit more organized, I suppose, cause you you'd sort of need to have things written down a bit, proper itineraries and stuff. But yeah, there was a lot of time with lots of notepads on the, on the tour bus, you know, and sort of trying to write lyrics and ideas and things. And, there was a lot of time watching films and things on the bus, late eighties or something. Um, it just felt a great time, but I haven't. There's no, there's no sort of record of any of it really because I didn't really take pictures or anything like that, you know. But we got to go to some amazing places and some of the best gigs I've ever done. And they, uh, and Dan Stewart, such a great fun man. It, it felt like really, it was. He had a bit of a like Neil Young kind of vibe, I thought. But it was, it was that kind of feel, you know. And it just felt really genuine powerful, rocky thing, you know, to do. So it was it was just something I'd started doing without really thinking about it, I suppose. That lasted a few years, and then suddenly like loads of other things just started coming in at that time, like being asked to do different things, you know. It, I think towards the late 80s, yeah, it suddenly got quite busy, and I'm not tr- quite sure where... I'm trying to remember the first time I kind of I think I think it was Glenn who gave me a call and we'd, we'd done a little gig in a sort of charity gig in Greenwich somewhere. It's just after that he sort of gave me a call. He said, oh do you want to do some more gigs as a, as part of a you know more of a squeeze type thing?" So we started doing some more gigs together, and suddenly we were off to America and it ended up being a whole sort of proper tour. You know, and we ended up doing an album, and then all around that time that, that that had finished, and then my son had just been born, so it was all quite sort of hectic. But it was a bit panicky because I thought I need to be working a lot, you know, because he's just been born. So and strangely enough, the, the squeeze thing kind of pieced out a little bit. That went a bit quiet. And then suddenly the Weller camp kind of got in. Poor, well, Paul Weller called and left a message out of the blue. So I kind of suddenly got into that world as well. So after that, Manning Street, Peter's needed someone to do stuff. But I couldn't do it at the time because I was doing <laughs> it. It was all just suddenly got a bit, a bit mad. But it, it was a great time, you know. It was so busy constantly that um, I was pleased to be doing
1: it, really, you know. But If you're not in a band full time, is there that kind of the back of your mind like what's the next gig oh shit i'm gonna be am i gonna be out like how musicians are kind of managing their lives in that way is is fascinating to me because i uh, i love the security of a full-time job even though i don't always love that full-time job but did you get anxious about it at all or not you think about it at the time you just
2: kind of go with it and it all seems quite good and it's it's like you just constantly do there's like stuff to do every day like some recording thing you know that with paul Weller, i mean it wasn't like a retainer but there was almost every day there seemed to be something happening be asked to be somewhere you know it was, it was either abbey road you know or, or some radio thing or some TV thing they just seem to be like for that year that I was playing with him it seemed to be pretty much constant you know there was something
1: Mm. so you're so busy really you're not thinking about it you know what's next you're just taking each day as it comes with you let's dig into some of the Weller Connections because were you a Style Council fan was that a band that interested you did you ever see them live or anything I saw
2: them on the tube actually once when they I think it was on the tube but but they they were pretty um, yeah I loved the sound of it I loved Mick's playing obviously which added a whole different sort of dimension you know yeah, it's amazing how Paul, I mean I think it's incredible how Paul sort of went from that whole it's a difficult thing to do isn't it going from the jam to completely different sound you know but I always loved the style cancel sound I thought it was it was quite unique and quite you know pretty I don't know if daring's is the word but it was it was like you know to go from that to that and, and make it happen you know it's 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 quite an achievement really um, I loved a lot of that that stuff and it reminds me of I suppose it's like a time machine isn't it that sort of music it reminds you of that sort of period of your life <laughs> where some of it was good a lot of the 80s I didn't like a lot of the music from that time they were a great band I I mean I think McThorne it's a funny connection there because he sometimes when I was doing the Paul Weller thing and the squeeze thing, Mick Talbot was brought in to play in the big band and you know, stuff with my brother's band. So it was kind of weird um, kind of connection, you know, but, um, but yeah, he's a lovely chap and, and he seems to add something to the sound of what he does, you know? And I think with the style council, it was just the right mixture with him and, and the whole band. And obviously Steve's such a great drummer, isn't he? So it just seemed to, and it was quite doing because they were, they were pretty young, weren't they? And un- mm. unheard. So it could have gone either way, but, yeah, he obviously had a vision and he sort of made it work
1: you know but I love a lot of those those albums from that time Now Weller Solo there's so much connection with Paul Wildwood Stanley Road the TV show Later and Jaws and things like that because um, you know so much of the TV performances from around that time he seems to be on Later every week and there were all these specials it was fabulous but when was the first time you got to play with him was it part of Later the TV show?
2: I think it must have been yeah I'm trying to remember good question isn't it yeah I think it must have been when we were doing one of the maybe the Hootananes or something cause we did quite a few and he, he has done a few, but good question. Um I probably will I remember there was one hootan he did, I can't remember which one, and he I remember he complimented me on my jacket.
1: <laughs> that is high praise from Weller, right? <laughs>
2: Nice jacket, man, I like, uh, uh, and then, uh, and so and I was quite pleased that he noticed it, you know, and nice playing and all that. So I said, "Oh, thanks." So I think it may be sort of thought so, uh, he, he sort of could. Uh, I don't know. and It wasn't long after that I got a call from him. I guess so. It, he obviously it was same with Ray Davis actually when he we did Hoosanee with him and then a few bit later on he, he asked me to do some stuff with him separately. But yeah, it was it was probably the first time we played with Paul was there. I think probably the Hoosanee. Yeah, and I remember listening. Yeah, a lot of his solo his albums. I mean, I listened to a lot of those when they came out and he, he he was on later a lot wasn't it, at the time I think um, that was another amazing thing to go from that next kind of solo career from the Style Council and they're some of the best albums he's done as well aren't they and they, they sound different again you know it's like a different sound but it's him I suppose you know but after we did the Squeeze I think the Squeeze album we did in Helocentric Studios which was a studio Chris Difford had at the time and then just the year after that I ended up doing the Helocentric tour with Paul Weller because he'd obviously recorded in the, in the
1: same studio which is a coincidence yeah maybe you were like back to back Squeeze had out and then Weller's got in I think he nearly what? set fire to the studio or something as well yeah or, or... I can't remember it was a great studio it was a lovely
2: typeface. place and it was a nice memory recording st- I mean it was all done live the Squeeze album there I can't, it was all quite quick but there was quite a close connection with Squeeze and the Jam I suppose similar to the period growing up in and the sort of that whole period you know I guess and they've sort of done similar things although I always think it's amazing how Paul seems to have done he does the lyrics and and the tunes you know and it's with squeeze obviously it's it's you know right, uh, lyrics and and melodies sort of generally separately. but but it's a, it was coming from a similar time I suppose you know although pretty different sort of bands.
1: You know. I remember interviewing when I was back back on BBC Radio Bristol, around that time it would have been actually as a radio presenter, and I interviewed Glenn, Glenn Tilburn, and I had no idea that, about the separation and how they created their music. I just loved their music. So I was asking Glenn about all these lyrics... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah that's Chris's no, no that's still that's still Chris's that's one of Chris's
2: i done a gig and someone says oh great drumming you know and they and you've just come off stage and they obviously haven't watched you at all because you've know, been playing keyboards all night and- <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah now I'm going to quiz you about the heliocentric tour in a sec but I think I'm right in saying the first time you guys got into the studio together was actually for a Jaws album Lift the Lid and a song called I'm Gone which you've actually got a writing credit on that song as well so you must have been involved more than more than I was going to say more than just the keys but you know what I mean but well yeah. it was on that song wasn't it?
2: Yeah I forgot about that yeah I think at the time because yeah there were lots of big band albums out each each year I think just with various collaborate but our friends albums I think they were called cool, weren't they L- lots of guests and stuff um, and uh, yeah me and my older brother we did sort of write a few things together and that one I think Paul, yeah Paul's sort of guest on. So yeah, I forgot about that. But yeah, that was a good time. It was busy, you know, doing all those sort of albums every year. Yeah. So I think Paul, I think, I think Paul baby came in afterwards and did the vocal bit. I can't, can't remember, but I don't remember if he was there. At the time, doing it live, you know. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, and he always add, as soon as he sings on site, like, it just goes in a different direction, doesn't it? It's amazing, and his voice seems to just got better over the years in a weird way, way. You know, it's so powerful. You know, which is a bit like Glenn Thomas from Squeeze, I think. similar he's got his voice just seems to get better. You know, some people don't; they still lose it, but don't it? They? But they've all gone from strength to strength. I think.
1: You know. Yeah, I was listening. I was reading an interview with Paul, a fairly recent interview the other day, where he was talking about some of the style council stuff and the jam stuff, and he was like, he was talking about how he feels he's a much better vocalist these days, and he was saying some of. The style cancel stuff, he just can't listen to, or he's like really critical. And actually, when you do listen to it, you're like, Vocally, it's not always brilliant. Like, Shouts to the Top is not a great vocal performance from Weller, but it is a terrific song. His voice now is incredible.
2: Yeah, I mean, some of my favorite songs or singers are they're not great vocalists, you know, but it's just the feeling, isn't it? And, you, and the energy. And I think Paul's always had that energy and that sort of it's almost that vibe, you know. Um, and it's yeah, I, I mean, that's my favorite. So, I mean, I love you can, you know, you, there's great singers as well. And it, uh, it's almost just that thing of just being able to sing and play your own song and mean it. and, and And people sort of feel it as well, don't they? And
1: you can get you get that off Paul definitely, you know. Quite rare in some ways, isn't it? You know. So. Now the heliocentric tour. So this was Steve White on drums, Steve Craddock, Edgar Jones on bass, who has been on the podcast recently, and I know you're you're really good friends. And you on keys, obviously, Mr. Weller <laughs> How can I forget? Paul was involved, obviously. How did that come about? There was a gap in the band, and they give you a call,
2: or? I remember getting a call from Paul, and he left a message. I wish I'd kept already but he left a message on the answer machine when I was yeah before the mobile phones. So it was just on a, on an old answer machine thing, um, just saying, which would you be interested in doing? I think it was just maybe just coming down having a rehearsal doing a few gigs I wasn't really expecting it but I remember going down and I sort of vaguely knew Steve a little bit because Steve actually went to the same school that I went to for a little bit as did Alan other you know who was a bit younger who ended up playing with Oasis obviously you know but yeah I didn't know him that well but he's I mean it's such an incredible drummer and I think when I first got in the studios, it was just Steve playing and then I started playing a bit of piano with him and it that felt great you know and then we used to just jam for, I think he used to just jam for a few hours before rehearsals you know so we just had these jam sessions to see how it felt and I'd just be jamming on the the organ or the piano or stuff and then eventually we'd sort of start rehearsing some of the songs so it all, it all just sort of seemed to gel naturally really you know um and edgar's such a lovely boat. so he was playing it was fun and it was all just fun. it felt like a fun time you know and i i really yeah i really have good memories of that of that little lineup and tour and stuff because it was all nice lovely people steve always he's always the same you know always adds that those sort of power chords and his his kind of attitude thing which was amazing um and it felt like a really good lineup to me, yeah. and it sounded great listening. I, I think there was was at the Albert Hall. They recorded
1: one of the yeah. I've got it here. There's a, the DVD and a and a CD release of it of yeah live at the Royal Albert Hall. This came in 2000 off the back of the Heliocentric album.
2: Yeah, and that was with the, I think it was with the cut strings that Robert Kirby was doing at the time, wasn't it? And yeah,
1: that's right.
2: Yeah, I was just trying to remember because it was such long. It feels a long time ago now, does not it? But it was such a powerful sound, you know. And I, I love playing. I mean, one—I think first thing that happened is I got sent a load of CDs of his, some of his stuff with ticks on the songs. I think he was planning on doing, which a lot of them I'd never really sort of analysed. You know, you hear them, but you don't really. When you start listening to the keyboard parts, a lot of nice mellotron bits and moog. Bits and stuff. I thought this would be quite a nice challenge, you know, just for a change to do all these bits. So it was great to be able to. I felt a bit like, you know, like a sort of keyboard wizard being sort of set up with my Mellotron and the Moog and the Sir Hammond and piano and all well, it's so, so I was sort of surrounded by all these keyboards. So it was it was lovely just to be able to play some of those sounds on those songs, you know, and try and recapture them as best I could. And we did do a lot, a lot of really nice sort of festivals and stuff. And there's quite a few in Europe, I think. And um, I don't think we went to America. We went to Japan, I
1: think. And, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Osaka, yeah
2: yeah all of, all of it just felt it felt like a nice happy family sort of vibe and every everyone just seemed you know it felt great you know well, it lasted just over a year i think and then paul just started going solo i think and started wanting to do a bit of solo stuff a little
1: bit which was good and, and because i was doing other things it all worked out for me quite well but the um so other people on the podcast have talked about how paul takes the live performance very seriously so you mentioned like yes obviously you're having fun and stuff and you're doing what you love but rehearsals are pretty full-on right
2: yeah, it seems to be Because before that I mean, with the big band We never really rehearsed I mean, we rehearsed For, for, for an hour or something Occasionally before a tour, for, what A day before a tour But we, we never sound check Or rehearse much And it keeps it fresh, you know And lots of bands don't really But we'd always rehearse a lot And soundcheck and stuff But it's great, you know Because it, it, does, it does work Because it does sound really tight When you get together And then you each gel, don't you? And it, it was great Rehearsing, just jamming was great You'd sort of do a load of old soul songs And we'd sort of do You'd start playing things Like Hercules And all these things That, that I sort of vaguely knew anyway But it was it was it was great fun, you know, and it's just a good way of warming up, I guess. But he seems to just love playing, doesn't he? Well, even just it's just just for the fun of it, you know.
1: It's also interesting that so it's another period in Paul's career, solo career, where he's not dug into any of the jam stuff, any of the style councils. So you didn't get to play any of that stuff, did you? No,
2: I was ashamed because I always, yeah, that would have been fun, yeah, and I, yeah, because I mean it's so powerful when you go up, you know, and this big audience sort of screaming out, and then he's. he's I think Changing Man was the first song we used to do in the set quite often and it, it's such a powerful song to start with you know his guitar sound and his you know, front man it was just such a great feeling to be on stage doing that you know but I always thought it would have
1: been nice to have done some of the older stuff sometimes you know but yeah no, it, it never happened when I was doing it unfortunately but. but let's talk about some of those songs I really love Heliocentric as an album it doesn't yeah. get mentioned a lot as Paul's kind of um, I mean god there's so many great albums but songs like Dust and Rocks and Frightened is such a terrific tune
2: beautiful yeah I was going to say that yeah Heard them, I've still got the vinyl somewhere, which I think is probably quite rare, isn't it? Um, I listened to it recently, and I haven't got the um, I don't, it doesn't seem to be on, on iTunes because I don't really do that much, but I did do some iTunes. And I, I was trying to find t lesscentric because so I was trying to remember some of the you, I didn't really want to play the vinyl because I was trying to keep it, <laughs> you in- need to keep that mint, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I, that's the only version I've got of it so I didn't really ha- uh, I couldn't seem to find it so I don't know if it's quite a rare one but it's um, it had some lo- great songs yeah Dustin uh, Rocks was great yeah it was it was really powerful that one of my favourite ones I think with the um, sort of weird move bits and all that stuff very, very moving song for and it was good because he, he just played that on the piano and then I'd sort of I think it yeah it was just piano and organ a lot of that one was it. Was there one picking up sticks on that was that on that that's one? right yeah yeah, picking up sticks but, yeah Paul uh, sorry Steve yeah Paul would get off stage and we'd t- stand at the and Steve would go into a drum solo and it was like literally you know your hair's tingling on the back of your chest because he, he was such a he did such an amazing solo
1: every night Steve and I was just like blown away by it every night you know oh it's incredible isn't it absolutely but there's some really great songs from his catalogue on that tour so things like Heavy Soul You Do Something To Me you mentioned Changing Man Peacock Suit and stuff but I have to mention Woodcutter's Son Which often would be like the finale, but the keys on that, man alive. All right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's another one. I
2: think a lot of Metatron on that, but yeah, it's a powerful song again, isn't it? It wasn't, yeah, it was, it was great fun. It was just a challenge really, just to try and do it as best you can. You know, Um, so it was, there was a lot of fiddling about for me, but I, um, seem to get away with that I think.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now, you mentioned about Keyboard Wizard, or I mean, the amount that you can play, but how much did you take on that talk? And you remember what you had with you? Because, I mean, you mentioned things like moves and Mellotron and Rhodes, and I mean, I know you play like Wurlitzer and um Hammond, oh, Vintage yeah, Keyboards, all kinds of stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, maybe some people probably got it all in one keyboard now, haven't they? You just, oh, it's, it's got... Press a button, yeah. But it, see, it was nice,
2: because we had the, yeah, the, the, the Hammond organ, the um, I think it was, yeah, the, the, there was a Moog, had a Moog, which was um, at the side, on top of the Mellotron. So it was a genuine Mellotron, but that, that was Paul's Mellotron. Um, and, well, it's a, and a piano sound, pretty much. So, yeah, I think it was five keyboards or something like that. Yeah, I should have got a cape Really, shouldn't I, gone the whole thing? No.
0: <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down.
2: It's nice to use the original sounds, you know, and it did definitely the proper keyboards. You know, it does it does sound different, you know, than um, some of these other things that people use. It, it sounded amazing, and it, it looks good, doesn't it? Having that whole thing up there. So,
1: how um, did it differ? Can you remember how it differed when the orchestra came in for the, that Royal Albert Hall gig or gigs? I think there were a couple of nights because they weren't with you the whole of the tour, were they? No, that was just the thing.
2: I had some. I remember chatting with Robert. I mean, I wasn't really aware of him, but I knew obviously he'd done Nick Drake's albums, and he was such a lovely man, you know, just so knowledgeable about music, and. um yeah, I, mem- I remember just thinking, "Wow, this sounds incredible!" Just rehearsed. We rehearsed it first, and you couldn't really hear the orchestra as loud. But when we got to the Albert Hall, we sound checked, and you could hear the,
1: the powerfulness of it. You know, I- did, we- did you go to that gig at all? I don't know. We- we no, I- I- no, I wasn't there. Um, I'm trying to think where I was. It was probably in Bristol or something. It was probably oh. L- London. Was probably a very scary place for me back then. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I've absolutely caned that DVD though. It's yeah. brilliant.
2: Yeah, Hopefully, it sounded good out front, but it- on stage, it sounded really powerful. You know, with the strings behind and the and the sort of mixture of that and the yeah, and the, and the band. I think it worked, worked so well, and I'm just glad. Yeah,
1: I'm glad they captured it. Yeah, I think Edgar said that his, his his mum's got his copy. Oh
2: right, yeah. I think I, I saw seen clips of it. I think Steve White actually sent me. Cause I didn't know it was out there. And then I think Steve White sent me a clip of it on YouTube or something. And it was yeah. I think it was Dustin Rocks which is probably one of my, my favourite ones. I think from that time, it it always felt really moving to do. You know that one, and uh, yeah, and Feistman was another really powerful one. They said, yeah.
1: I love the other thing I loved around that time because I did go to that tour. It just wasn't that gig. Was the was these things? Have you seen this? You know oh yeah, vaguely remember that. Yeah. So these were the matchday programmes. This was volume six, designed by Simon Half and all the photography from Lawrence Watson who's been on the podcast. And you just got these beautiful books, which just seems such a strange thing now. To so kind of you buy the you know, and then it, you're 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 clutching this around <laughs> the whole gig, you know, in the mosh bit. But um they're just beautifully produced and Paul's always like love the visual element of his music and, and bringing it to life and stuff but there we are there's a little mention there you are look paul weller steve white steve Craddock, edgar jones chris holland
2: I lo- yeah i love the artwork on that so it's, it's great isn't it I was, yeah that, i think that whole album is brilliant you know and it, it does seem to be un- un- underlooked a little doesn't it maybe in, in his thing but yeah it's it was it, it was nicely packaged and yeah happy memories really of the whole thing you know it's nice to delve into that world and and see how it all works you know and um meet his dad obviously he's a bit of obviously a legend um, and uh the whole experience was yeah it was it was it was nice good timing as well as i said my son had just been born and and uh, i don't think i'd ever been paid so much for a
1: gig you know so it suddenly went into the was, was it was brilliant as, you as you've mentioned john i mean and i'm imagining with a young son you didn't get fooled by this but were you part of the cards school on the tour did you get involved in playing the cards little but not a lot but i was quite i thought it was quite it reminded me of my kind of
2: my grandparents a little little bit used to play cards a lot you know with them and, and it was it was it was nice seeing John and, and, and Kenny at the end of the whenever you know, playing he said come and have a game and, and, and he'd sort of give you a whiskey or something you know but I just couldn't I mean I did I think I did a couple and I think the first one I did I think my he said oh well that would be your PT's gone for the next kind of few days <laughs> I had a chance to be honest, you know, but it was nice to have a go, you know, but it was it was quite a good way of getting out of paying PDs, you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> As you know, Chris, I do I do my research on the podcast here, right? So twenty 2012- twelve there's a tweet from you. I'm not expecting you to remember everything you tweeted about in 2012, right? But I'm going to read it to you. Um, he said, spot, spotted this nice old seventies poster hanging next to the organ while recording with Paul Weller today. Um, I should probably split a share screen, which would be an easier, but it was this kind of green poster and the jam were on it. I think this would have been for September in the rain. I would guess around that time, maybe, maybe, yeah, it was September the 15th, 2012. Was your tweet? I, my brother's studio, where we rehearse a lot, there's,
2: there's quite a lot of old posters. I think that must be a really old poster from the seven, 70s. Yeah, yeah, that was interesting, isn't it? Because yeah, I think that's next to the organ in, this, in my brother's studio. So I think that's playing the organ. I looked at the date and noticed it was the same date. And that poster was on the wall next to me. So I thought it was a bit freaky. And it's basically squeeze yeah, the jam on the same bill. At the Greyhound Pub. Yeah, exactly,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah. We had Babyface on the Monday, Handbag on the Tuesday, Squeeze on the Wednesday, Red Beans Rice on the Thursday. I don't know if uh, that was a meal or a band.
2: <laughs> no, Red Beans and Rice actually was, I vaguely remember them. And they had a Mike Pace who used to play my brother's first band, the Millionaires. He was a sort of harmonica and saxophone player who's sadly
1: no longer here. But they were like a New Orleansy kind of sort of funky funky type band, yeah. And we have what we've got, Spangled Mob on the Friday, The Jam on the Saturday, completely different logo wording. For the band as well, and and then the Sunday yeah. Capability Brown,
2: brilliant, excellent, yeah, that's that's cool, isn't it? It's like a nice little, a time warp of, of what it was like then. Yeah, I was I was a bit like the marquee every. I mean, going up, I remember going up to the marquee pretty much every weekend when I was about fifteen or sixteen, and I, I I didn't really like you know lessons too much at school, and I used to bunk off going to music lesson a lot music rooms and just practice piano and I'd sort of sneak off early sometimes go up to the to, to the marquee and then it, it always let me in somehow and then just started watching different bands up there every night and there'd always be posters like that with different bands on you know and you, you never heard half of them but some of them were great you know and it'd be a great way of, of listening to it and then a, a little bit later on with the band I had with us from school you know we, we ended up playing residency there pretty much every every week so it was, it was great that kind of time wasn't it I'd, Just you, those posters you'd see them all over the all over
1: London, weren't you? All the
2: different bands and stuff. And yeah, it did seem quite a magical time, you know, all that,
1: really. Well, yeah, the fact that you can see live music every single night, which is just not a thing now, really. No, oh, yeah, yeah, just a sort of good time. But strange enough, thinking, but I can't remember the details, but I know Lisa,
2: who played and, who used to play with the, our first band, I, I remember she did an audition for the Style Council a bit later, and I can't quite remember how it came about because she played guitar. There, there weren't that many sort of female guitar players at that time, you know, it's quite a bit, a bit unusual, I think. Um, and they were looking for for female guitarists I think, in in the Star Council. And I think she almost got the job, but it's it like between her and obviously someone else. So she but I remember she telling me about it. I can't remember the details. Yeah, interesting Interesting.
1: When you tweeted that that must have been when you were in the studio in Jaws's studio. Was was that the yeah. last time you recorded with Paul? It probably was, yeah, I'm guessing, yeah.
2: Yeah, I don't. I can't remember what it was. Or it might have been rehearsing for for the Hootenanny or something. I can't remember the last time we did it
1: with him, but it's been a. has been a few times, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's an amazing. I mean, even the Amy Winehouse Hootenanny was. You were in that band at that point, weren't you?
2: Yes. Yeah. That was that was an amazing one, wasn't it? We we're probably rehearsing, and I remember just, so looking at this. Yeah, and he'd sort of be. And I was the organs up on a sort of raised level, so I was sort of used to look down on everyone. So he'd be down there rehearsing, yeah, playing and rehearsing. But then I think I just looked at the side of me and saw the jam poster and it seemed quite a strange kind of significant thing really that that was probably one of the, the most um memorable times playing with porn uh, with the big band you know with, with amy whitehouse one that was that was quite special really you know that's
1: probably on youtube isn't it the clip of yeah that, yeah it is yeah it's just, uh, yeah absolutely yeah like don't go to strangers just absolutely stunning isn't
2: it yeah yeah and i don't think we'd rehearsed that much it was pretty much you know just done quite I don't,
1: I don't understand like, when you say that it's like, like I can't get my head around that like the fact that there's very little rehearsal you're just bang into it so how do you do you spend weeks and weeks prepping for these kind of guest appearances on things like Husanani and to, to learn the music and understand your bits of it how, as individuals?
2: No really I think it's quite it's all quite last minute because we're usually on the end of a tour the winter tour with the big band and then suddenly you get this load of songs they keep changing and the guests want to change the keys or the songs and it, it seems to just be quite just constantly changing um, so it you have to keep kind of, you know, updating what what information you have, and then we, we ended we end up getting into the stu- sort of studio for like one day just to rehearse it all. And generally, the, the horn rangers will arrange the horns section, and then the rhythm section will work their own parts out, and it will all kind of come together. But we only really get a day to rehearse it, you know, and then we go straight into the,
1: BBC and do it pretty much like, like as it is, you know. Well, I don't know. They always seem to make it work somehow, you know. But and it's a I mean, It's magical TV. I love Hootenanny. I was I was down under this New Year just gone, so I didn't see it live. So I watched it back. So- subsequently it was weird being in australia because the whole kind of christmas thing doesn't really happen and whatever you did, i was like hold on what's there's nothing on telly in australia at all apart from the fireworks they show the fireworks i was right. like where's the, you need the hooter nanny what's going on yeah it is i mean it's
2: amazing it's been going that long isn't it and it's like the tradition of it um i mean it has changed since the covid thing as well i think it's changed because the audience had to you know that we had to do it without the audience and then it's gradually coming back but and also when it was at the original you know, the iconic BBC, you know, up in Shepherds Bush, that that helps, I think, for the whole thing. But I mean, it's amazing. They're still doing it as, as it is. And it's, um, yeah, I mean, hats off to, to my brother, really, for keeping all that stuff together so long. Because it's not, it's quite an achievement, isn't it? Too bad. Yeah, yeah. How long he's been doing all that, you know, it's incredible yeah.
1: You mentioned COVID, uh, the dreaded C word. But as a touring musician, your entire world disappears. But you kept yourself pretty busy with a number of music projects during that time
2: yeah I mean it was good. I mean it was quiet as far as gigs went and like there was no money as far as all that went you know which is the main income to, to, to musicians you know but it was a good opportunity to try and get a load of songs finished that I'd been working on I suppose and I'm always chipping away at, I mean I just do it because I love it really it's not you know like, but I'm always chipping away at song ideas and writing and recording so it was a good chance to finish a lot of that stuff you know I mean I'm not that technical but I've got a little basic home studio set up you know so it was get, good to get more into that really and you know spend a bit more time having a clear out of stuff which is which is what you keep putting off you know and just trying to kind of have minimal things around and not, not have too much clutter so yeah it was a good chance to do all that I guess you know it got quite desperate for a while didn't it when there was literally nothing you know and it was because that, that's all I've ever done really you know and you don't really think of anything else you know so it was it was a weird old time but we seem to be got Getting fit now. So looking back, I did. I did do. A, I did a little charity. There was this one for the NHS. A friend of mine who had been helping manage me a little bit I had put together this sort of charity album so I, I did a song for that and also my mum passed away just before COVID it wasn't it wasn't to do with COVID but she, she, she'd just been getting a bit poorly before so it was nice to do something for that yeah I did two I think I did two charity singles that, in that time best I could but it was difficult because I was just doing it at home pretty much on my own and I didn't have any I had limited technical knowledge really so <laughs> it was done quite basically but yeah no, it was nice to keep busy and just be creative really in that yeah. time
1: it was, um, so, and I'll put these in the show notes The so Great Awakening was the one for raising money for NHS heroes the album songs of isolation so that was right in the the midst yeah. of a kind of covid crisis if you like and then the second lockdown song you mentioned so that was dedicated to your to your mum right so that was thank you for the love
2: yeah i mean it was it was basically it's just ideas i'd had really but that was cuz she she sort of had quite bad dementia at the end and it was it was just it was a little charity thing to that for that and all the people that are so you know amazing who help out in the care home she was you know and they just and it was a really difficult time for them you know and you couldn't go in and see her half the time you know because of that covid thing but yeah it was just so sort of dedicating it to them really you know i suppose in a little way but it was just also it was an experiment to try and do stuff on my own really because i would never done that before i usually go in and do it with a band or, or something you know but it was quite it was quite nice just to do it as, best I could on my own so it, it didn't sound the sound sonically wasn't brilliant but
1: it was just trying to get it out I imagine it's quite liberating so to be in control of and being able to do it all yourself and kind of um, or, or do you miss that kind of camaraderie and that bouncing ideas off people
2: um, yeah I think a bit of both, both you know I, I've, I've still got a band that I play like we do sort of fun, pop, fun gigs with sometimes parties and stuff just for fun with um, different people and it's always nice just to play live isn't it with some with other people and you bounce off things I think that is the best way to capture a song if you've got the song worked out and by playing it live a lot obviously you know and, and then you capture that that magic but a lot of the time I've, I've got a song half done so i'm sort of writing it as i'm going along almost so you put the idea down and build it up that way and then add things on after there's all different ways of doing it you know but i mean that's one of the things i'm, I'm sort of curious about paul weller's songwriting really you know because it is so incredible a lot of it and you, you wonder where he gets all these ideas and his process of how he when he gets the idea in his head does he then just jam it with a band or does he sort of you know how does he actually the process of him actually going from you it's like a blank canvas isn't it you've got this sort of idea but you want to get it down it never sort of works out quite how you have it in your mind you know but how does he go from that process of <laughs> getting it into a sort of actual finished product you know it's
1: um it's also that thing of like there doesn't seem to be many periods where he talks about writer's block at all and we're talking over 45 years now it's just yeah. Remarkable, yeah. isn't it? Like over 450 songs, I think I worked out the other day.
2: Yeah, and it's so poetic. I mean, it's so poetic, you know, from, from, you know, just looking at, you know, where does he get these ideas? It could be like a book of poems, almost some of the words, couldn't it? And you just wonder how he gets so many inspired ideas, you know, and it's, um, because I mean, I, I love writing all the time, I'm always getting ideas and notepads and writing the song. I've got millions of ideas, you know, but it is a constant thing, you know, you have to rewrite and change things. But his one's just, see, he seems to have so many all the time and he never seems to tire of it. You know, it's, it's incredible, really, isn't it? i consuming so. I well, mustn't yeah, people around him, you know, because you have to go into that whole zone, don't
1: you? you? Can't almost do anything else. But yeah, he seems to manage to do it all, doesn't he, and do everything else. So. It's been a while since we've had an, an album from you. Um, it's been a few years. How do you approach the kind of making of a new project? Because you mentioned at the start of this that you've been working on an EP in the early hours.
2: Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of almost finished pretty much. But with that one, I've, I've almost been doing most of it myself. Um, and then I've been bringing in a few people just to add the bits too. But it's yeah, quite it's almost finished pretty much. So I'm I'm just trying to work out how. I'm going to get it mixed really because hopefully the guy Ron Box who's helped me in the past is, is able to do it and then I'll just yeah just get it out there as a little thing you know this this year but yeah part of it is I mean it is all part of it's you know the technical thing and the cost and all that stuff I mean like the last album I had out I, I ended up getting a lot of CDs made up but a, a lot of I don't know if people think that some people say they're coming back, some but it's nice to have a physical thing as well, isn't it? You know, and obviously vinyl is the best thing, but it is expensive now, you know, to get vinyls printed up, particularly if you're going to get colored ones or different ones, you know, and then you've got to carry them around it. So it is a tricky thing to work out, you know, but, um, I just do it because I love it really, you know, and it's just, um, just, I can't seem to stop, you know, as soon as I sit down at a keyboard, you just come up with some idea and you just say, Oh, where's that going to go? And then you, you almost don't want to do it because you just think, well, you, then you want to finish it, but, you know, it's, it's, time consuming isn't it I think as you get older to do it also
1: you'll know from listening to the podcast like Paul's not seems like a nocturnal character from the the text of people in the middle of the night so they're making music into the very early hours it's it's that thing of just once you start getting into it you don't want to walk away you're in that zone (laughs) I guess
2: yeah. And often you're lying in bed, you can't see because you will all these songs going around your head. you say, Oh yeah. And then you get the best ideas in the morning, suddenly, you know, at night. And you, <laughs> I used to have a little, well, I next to the bed literally and I'd, I'd sort of start playing at night because you get these ideas and record it down, down on your phone or something. But you have all these ideas, melodies and songs, you know, but yeah, I mean, I find melodies easy, but I think lyrics are the hard thing for personally, you know, and, and I've done a few with Chris Difford's given me a few lyrics in the past, you know, and it's, it's, and that's another quite hard thing, I think, to write. I mean I don't know how Glenn Tilbert does that you know write to lyrics because that's quite tricky and I've sort of made it work a bit but I find it much more natural to it sort of happens at the same time almost you've got a melody and then you kind of work out the lyrics seem to come fall into the meter of the rhythm that you've got yeah to come out of original lyrics I suppose you can only write what you know
1: about really you know but it's
2: a lot of it's 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 quite tricky to get that balance I think yeah
1: I've always found that dynamic fascinating particularly when you know Chris was sending Glenn the lyrics in the post you know and these would arrive whereas now. I think Chris when he was on the podcast he was talking about actually you might have a little melody in his mind when he's writing the stuff but Glenn will just go off and do his own thing or whatever Which is, yeah. but yeah, yeah you so just literally these, these lyrics are just arriving in the post and then suddenly you're making music to them it's
2: amazing yeah, yeah I mean it must be inspiring to have that if, you know when they, the way they used to do that and he sort of put it under the door didn't it? when they lived in the same flat in different flats together in the same building and Glenn would kind of come up with the melody it's a magical way of working it's a bit like the old sort of musicals isn't it how they used to write all the old sort of classic sort of songs, but it's it's quite a a skill i think you know it's um not everyone has, you know. Paul does it all himself in different ways, and then I mean, Glenn has done lots of solo albums as well, where he's done both, you know. So it's it's interesting, isn't it? It's all it's all different ways of doing it, you know. I mean, growing up, a lot of my influences, song, singer songwriters, people like Randy Newman, for example, you know, he'd sit, just sit at the piano and it would be pretty much piano and voice. But that was just, that was really powerful, you know. And he's probably one of the, one of the greatest lyricists, you know, of all time, you know. But I always found that inspiring, just keeping it really simple, just the piano and the voice. You know, it's an interesting, I don't know, the whole thing of creating something, you know. From nothing is always fascinating. I think you
1: know. I love the idea, yeah, of that. You're going into the studio sometimes with very little, um, or you're going into a little room and or whatever, and then you're coming out and you're making there's a the finished, complete song. that yeah. We all get to, and that could live on forever. It's mental. You,
2: know, you get it out there, and you never know where it's going to go. Do you? it's like having those babies, and they just go out and they do their go off and do their own thing. And yeah, it's just it's interesting, is it? It's fascinating, kind of particularly now because of you know it can just end up anywhere can't I say, on the in the world, you know. Whereas before it was it wasn't really possible
1: was it i suppose lovely to chat with you i'm so glad that we managed to sort this out i do have two questions for you before you go though right
2: far away i think <laughs> you're I'm gonna be because i've been listening to some of your
1: podcasts <laughs> well hopefully you'll have an answer then so you're allowed one paul weller song for the rest of your life it can be the jam the star council or solo what are you gonna go with
2: well i was thinking i, I do love dust and rocks only because I- you mentioned that because it was from that sort of period that and it has fond memories you know when we were playing it live but also listening, talking about Mick, Mick Talbot and, and his playing Um and one of my favourite Paul Wally songs is I think Wings of Speed was really powerful because I remember he did that, I think he did it on the glacier as well but because it was just piano and organ, you know, and it, and I think Mick did say about when recording the organ it was like a church organ in a, in a chapel. <laughs> but I, I don't know I always I thought that it's quite a gospel feel almost that song isn't it but it's sort of simple but his looks, his vocals are really powerful on that and it's quite emotional that one isn't it that's Carleen Anderson
1: on that one as well isn't it amazing yeah yeah got a nice sound feel about it isn't it something a bit spiritual one good choice man good choice right so final question this Podcast it's to talk to lovely people like yourself obviously and hear your stories but it's really for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career Career. if it happens what should i ask him
2: well yeah i was thinking i mean apart from the obvious things has, does he listen to Has he listen to all the podcasts on this hopefully he has you know um, i'm curious about his how he gets the inspiration you know for his, his lyrics and his process of writing you know and how how does he actually write a song you know and and he gets the ideas and then his how does he get that from nothing to the finished thing you know i, I don't know if I, maybe he has talked about it in the past probably in, in interviews but it's it's always fascinating i think to find out how someone does though you know i mean that's something I'd, I'd personally be curious to know about you know how he actually writes a song from scratch you know and how, how it starts off you know is it like a, like a germ of an idea to, in his head you know and does he sit down and write the whole lyrics and i don't know i think it's probably different for each song maybe you know but
1: be, be curious to find out his process you know so yeah that bit of w- at which point does it come out of your head and onto something whether it's a lyric or a, ch- a little melody or a little note yeah. or whatever at yeah. what point does he think oh this is worth Recording somewhere, writing down or whatever. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And then it, and then it's quite hard sometimes to capture that, isn't it? You know, get that spark, you know, and, and does he just do loads of versions till he gets it right? I mean, he, you know, sometimes you can't do that, you know, but he's, he's got his studio. He can do it as much as he wants, probably until he's happy with it. But some of the early stuff, I suppose, with the jam stuff, because it was quite, probably done pretty much live quite quickly, wasn't it? And you don't have time to really think about it. Whereas now people can keep changing stuff and sort of dissecting it a bit. But, you know, and I don't know if
1: that's always a good thing, is it? But, um, yeah, and has he got has he
2: got a new album out sort of on the way? Do you know is there anything coming? There's soon? talk
1: of it. so I read an interview and and, um, and people have mentioned to me. I think the next one's going to be a triple album. Not this year, probably next year. I think was what and I think he mentioned this in Mojo magazine one of the interviews. But yeah, I mean, yeah, he's not slowing down, right? Right, that's
2: incredible, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we saw him quite recently. We did a prostrate cancer g- gig uh, at the Albert Hall. He was seen the same as ever, you know. And I, I said, I, mean, I said to him, it's amazing because the last time I was here with him was when we did that that tour, you know. It was a great gig because Rod Stewart was doing it with us, and he's obviously a huge fan as well. So it was just a nice atmosphere on stage. Where we all, sort of, everyone was just sort of playing and 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 chatting. But he said, yeah, I remember. He said, yeah, it was great. I'm happy memories of that gig, you know. And it, and it was nice just to sort of see him and not. And he, he doesn't. He doesn't seem to. He doesn't seem to ever stop, you know. Which is, I don't know where he gets that sort of energy in that form, you know, particularly after <laughs> he's just had twins and he's just, I think he, because there was into a lot of drinking going on at the time when I was there, and it, it, it's, that must have been quite tiring. I, I couldn't keep up, you know, but I think that stopped. So that's probably given a new lease of life, maybe, you know, but it's amazing his energy, isn't it? And how he just kind of seems to just keep cool and keep doing it. So, yeah. yeah I don't know so.
1: how they managed to do any gigs with the amount of alcohol consumption back in the day. <laughs> I
2: mean, it was, it was quite,
1: I think that was generally after, wasn't it? But yeah, it was quite tiring. Yeah, but the hangover now- Next
2: day, you know not want to oh, yeah. bloody oh god. <laughs> it was fun times, you know. But um yeah, so it's, it's moved on a bit. Yeah, but it sounds great now, doesn't it? What he's doing, it, I mean, it sounds just as, as good in a different way, you know. And it's good he keeps it
1: fresh all the time, you know, which I think is important, isn't it? Well, I think also like when you bring in an orchestra, when to bring in an orchestra and do something different there, like he did at the um, with the other aspects gigs, or yeah, when you need keys in the band or not, and it's kind of constantly kind of reshaping the band, reshaping the sound to, to do yeah. different things, or when it's just him and an acoustic guitar. That days of speed tour, which came off the back of the heliocentric tour, you mentioned. And it's, that was just fabulous, you know, just Paul and acoustic guitar.
2: Yeah, exactly. That was it was unique, wasn't it? Again, I think his voice is so strong, you know, you can, it's, it's, and it's so distinct, isn't it? But I think ultimately it comes down to the song, doesn't it? If you, you know, it's having a great song, you know, and another great one was "You Do Something to Me" because I remember that was a really powerful one to do, and the, with the melotron you know. And I think it, when you know, when you've got a great song, it's 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 easy it's easy almost to, to play it, you know, because it or record it because it, it's always going to sound great, isn't it? Well, look,
1: digging into the process is on my list, so Paul going to tell us about that when the interview with Mister Welland <laughs> happens we're going to dig into that we'll get back to you and we'll we'll, we'll let you know how we all will hear on the podcast yeah. we'll, we'll find out about the process
2: No, no definitely yeah no it's like anything isn't it but yeah you've got it's got to be seen i'm sure he's going to be on this year
1: it's uh what number is this oh um what are we up to um your episode 131 christopher he's waiting to hear someone say something bad about him and then he's just, <laughs> yeah like, <laughs> the, the whole thing's over
2: <laughs> yeah. no, it's amazing it's lovely it's such a great thing to have
1: done you know and, and well, well done on that um, Oh, bless I, you. I hope he, he listens to them all, basically. Yeah, because. Oh, thank you so much for your time, man. I've loved spending time with you. I've loved chatting. Yeah. It's been really lovely.
2: You see some gigs <laughs> some point down the road somewhere, but
1: nice to meet you, Dan. Yeah, take <laughs> care. Well, that was wonderful. Christopher Holland, another very fine individual, joining the podcast to share his stories. A lovely, lovely chap. And what an amazing career again. Music, collaboration, and more. Head to my website for the show notes to this podcast episode, paulwellafanpodcast.com. And whilst you're there, you know the drill, right? You can find merchandise in our official store. Plus, you can also buy a virtual coffee as well. It all helps to support the podcast with our hosting fees on ACAS websites, so on. Cheers for all your support on the roll call this week. Mark D, who says, Hi Dan, I've listened from the start and your podcast has been an integral part of my week. So thought I should better buy you a coffee to say thank you. Love the Stuart Prosser episode reminiscing about the Style Council. Happy days. Thank you, Mark. Much appreciated. Hello to Steve Henson. Thanks to you for your virtual coffee. John Reed. Thank you, sir. Alex McLaughlin says Stuart Prosser was another star in the Weller sky, another guest It would be great to have a pint with. You're absolutely right. I do like the idea that Christopher had, by the way, for the wrap-up at the end of the series. Just all the guests, a lovely big party. Martin Bonhoms bought you a coffee. Thank you, Martin. Mike C. Thank you, sir. Simon Cartledge. Hello to you. Martin Glover. Thanks to you for your virtual coffee. Cheers for all of you. Thanks for your support. Really do appreciate it. If you want to get involved, just head to my website, grab a virtual coffee in the store for a shout out on the show next week. Now, talking of things that are really, really exciting, two things I want you to get involved in. Number one, we now have an occasional music show on Mixcloud. So one of the frustrations with the podcast, there aren't many, but one of the things that you can't really do because of licensing and all that is play music. So we now have a place on Mixcloud where we can do exactly that. The show's called Cobweb Connections. We'll probably do it monthly, but the idea is it is brand new music. From people who have been on the podcast or people who are on our wish list, essentially people with Paul Weller connections, have a listen. Mixcloud, search for "desperately seeking Paul" or "Paul Weller fan podcast." You should find it there, or head to my website for more details. Would love you to listen. Second thing, we are going to be announcing some live shows very, very soon. All right, live podcasts in 2023. Make sure you follow on social media for all the announcements: Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. If you're not on social media, just head to my website and make sure you follow there too. We'll share the announcements via that. And you can always get in touch too. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.